Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. American meat delivered right to your front door. Go to goodranchers.com slash alley. That's goodranchers.com slash alley. All right, guys, today we are talking to our friend Ross Kennedy. He is an expert in logistics and supply chains. We talked to him last year in October to tell us why the heck we are not getting the supplies and the food that we need, why are there food shortages, all that kinds of scary stuff. And he really walked us back from the ledge and explained why everything is going on. But that it's going to be okay. And so go listen to that episode if you haven't. It's actually one of my most popular episodes ever. You guys loved it because he is so good at explaining complex things in a way that the average person can understand. So he's going to do that again today. We're going to talk about the state of supply chains, why we are still unable to get the things that we want to get, but also need to get. And how is Russia and Ukraine affecting that? But also how is China and their current actions in places like Shanghai affecting that? We're also going to talk about this fascinating story that's happening in Grand Forks, North Dakota, where a Chinese company is trying to build a plant there that is strategically close to an Air Force base. And what is happening there? Is that project going to go forward? What does that mean for our national security? And it's not just happening there. That kind of thing is actually happening in strategic places across the country. What? That's crazy. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what we can do as an average citizen. And he's going to kind of paint a picture of worst and best case scenarios for just kind of the state of the world, geopolitics in general, but also specifically supply chains, what he thinks we can expect over the next couple of years. He is a great guest. You're going to learn a lot from this. It's probably going to blow your mind at points. And so I'm excited for you to hear it. But before we get into the conversation, just on a little bit of a lighter note, I hope that you guys had a wonderful Easter. We had a bonus Easter episode on Saturday. It was just a little mini episode, just talking about the gospel and why the resurrection matters and why we care about Easter. I tweeted about Easter this week and a few times, and most of them were received how I wanted them to be received. They were well received, but I sent one tweet that caused some controversy among Christians that I didn't mean for it to. I guess I should have communicated it more clearly, but I said something along the lines of, you know, the fact that Google doesn't do a little doodle for Easter, if they do a doodle for so many other so many other holidays, including other religious holidays, but they don't do one for Easter. And a lot of a lot of Christians are upset about that or they point out the bias, which I totally understand. I'm not knocking them for pointing out that bias. However, I'm kind of glad that they don't. Like, let's not allow Easter to be more commercialized than it already is. A lot of people celebrate Christmas, whether they're Christians or not, but the resurrection is different. It's different. And of course, Christmas is just as sacred for Christians, but the resurrection is less commercialized than Christmas is. And I think that that's a good thing. Like it, it can't be boiled down to this like trite little doodle on Google. It is offensive. The resurrection is offensive. The resurrection is controversial. The resurrection is polarizing. And I don't mean it's controversial among Christians. Like we don't know whether it happened or not, which is what some people 
strangely thought that I was saying. I mean, there were literally people who follow me underneath saying, wow, you hate Christianity. You're calling the resurrection controversial. You hate Christians. Try try to try to hate other religions. I'm like, oh my gosh, can we just take a little fraction of a second to put our thinking caps on for one second and realize that when I say the resurrection is controversial and polarizing and that it's okay that Google doesn't use a doodle, I am not saying that it's bad. I'm saying that that's what Christianity is. It's always been controversial to the world. It has always been polarizing to the world. It has always been the receiver of scorn of the world. It's always been the um it's always been a, a victim, although I don't really like to use that use that term. I don't know, recipient of persecution in the world since its very beginning. The cross is controversial and offensive. The gospel is controversial and offensive. Genesis 1-1 is controversial and offensive, that God made the world and he is the authority over all of it. If you believe that, then you can believe the rest of the Bible. If you don't believe that, then the rest of the Bible is going to be really hard to understand. And most of the world does not believe Genesis 1-1. And they sure as heck don't believe John 14-6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. The fact that our God or um, that our God, that he became flesh and that he rose from the dead, that is what sets Christianity apart. That is the controversial part of it. And that's what I was saying. I don't care if Google likes Easter. Let them be offended by Easter. Let them hate Christianity. I really think it's more of like an anti-West pro-CCP bent that they have than like truly disagreeing with the resurrection or Christian theology, but it is a spiritual problem. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with Google, who I think really operates in some ways in an evil way, understanding the gravity and the seriousness and the controversy surrounding Easter and not celebrating it. I don't need them. I don't need them. We're going to celebrate the resurrection as we have for the past 2000 years. And we are going to embrace whatever rejection or criticism or hate or hostility comes from that. That's what I that's what I was saying. Um, also, over the weekends, I ate healthy. As I said on my Instagram story, I did. I'll just be perfectly honest because we're holding each other accountable I did eat some like eat, like candy Easter egg, the small little candy Easter eggs on, on Saturday. If you don't know, I'm doing like a 30-day healthy eating plan and working out for at least 10 minutes a day every day for 30 days with my husband who has been doing that and more for 75 days. But anyway, and so I did cheat over the weekend on Saturday, but it's okay. On Sunday, I really wanted to. Okay. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to pat myself on the back here. I really wanted to. I really wanted one of those like Reese's bunnies. I really did. And one of those, or it's like an Oreo bunny or no, sorry, the Reese's eggs. And then like the little Oreo bunny. I really, really wanted that on Saturday. And when I was sitting there in the afternoon on the couch and my husband was playing golf, I was like, it would be okay it would be fine. I could just have a couple. And guys, instead, instead what I did was go work out. I went outside and worked out instead of eating the chocolate that I wanted to eat. And then what did I do? I made myself some guacamole and a turkey patty. That is not what I wanted to do. But let me tell you, just on a, like a serious note, is that I do think and those of you who are super disciplined in that, you know this, like making those little decisions it does, it does build something up. 
Like it, it builds up discipline so that the next day you say, you know what? I went the whole day yesterday without giving in to that temptation or whatever it was. I'm not talking about like sin temptation, but temptation to break the rules on your healthy eating plan. And I didn't do it. I resisted it. And so today I can do the same thing. It's the same thing like when I was talking about training for the half marathon every week, you know, that all you have to do is run one or one and a half miles more than you did last week. And you can handle that because you've already prepared you've already prepared so much before this moment. It's the same thing, I think, with healthy eating or with any really hard decision. I actually found that's true in my career too. And I didn't mean to go off on this tangent, but maybe it'll help some of you that um, whenever I was nervous, I remember the first time that I came to The Blaze in 2017 and I was like doing a Facebook Live and they wanted me to do a Facebook Live and I was so nervous and I didn't know if I could do it, but then I did it and it was good and it was fine. And then everything after that was like, well, I did that and I was nervous and it was fine. And then the first time I was on Fox News or whatever, I'm like, well, I did that and I was nervous and it was fine. And every moment kind of builds on the last moment and that's why preparation and discipline and doing scary things and doing hard things is so important because it helps you for whatever moment God is going to bring you to. And God is so strategic and he's so providential that he plans those moments and those um, risks that you take in your life so that you can be prepared and have the practice to face whatever challenge is coming. All right. That's that's the beginning of this. Um, kind of went a lot of different places. Doesn't have anything to do with what we are about to talk about, but I hope it encouraged you. All right, before we get into our conversation about logistics and the CCP and all of that good stuff, let me tell you about our first sponsor for the day. This is an awesome sponsor, and that is Preborn. Throughout the world, the leading cause of death is abortion. It's not COVID. It's not heart disease. It's not murder. It is, well, it is murder. It's a kind of murder that typically isn't talked about as murder, and that is abortion. It is murder of babies inside the womb. Uh, murder has become a wholesale business since Roe v. Wade. We've killed over 63 million children. Nearly 25% of pregnant mothers do not choose life. That is why Preborn exists. They are partnering with Blaze Media to help rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 20. 2022. It's the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. They know that when you allow a woman to hear the heartbeat of her baby, she is 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. And so that's why preborn partners with clinics across the country and the highest abortion rate cities and regions across uh, across the nation to ensure that women have access to free ultrasounds. When the mother chooses life, they provide maternity clothes, baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, and so much more free of charge. Over the past 15 years, they have saved four or 450,000 women considering abortion have been counseled by preborn and they have saved 188,000 babies. That's amazing. To donate they need your donation. So to donate, dial pound 250 and type keyword baby. Send baby to pound 250. That's pound 250 keyword baby or go to preborn.com slash Allie. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. You joined our show in October, but could you just remind everyone who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm the founder of a company called Fortis Analysis, uh, and uh, amongst the many things that uh, we get up to, uh, primarily a, a strategic consulting firm dealing with uh, logistics, supply chain, and national security issues. Uh, I have uh, numerous different stakeholders around the U.S., around the world, and uh, a finger in a lot of pies as far as uh, data, inform you know, data and information and 
seeing how these things are, you know, th these complex systems are, uh, sometimes they work, uh, sometimes they are in the midst of a cascading failure like we are right now. And, uh, so it's been, uh, useful, I guess, to, you know, data feed and, and to be able to explain to people kind of what's going on in the world and in a way that helps them understand. So, uh, wasn't yeah. the uh, initial intention uh, of Fortis, but uh, it's, it's certainly become you know part of what we're doing now. Well, logistics is typically behind the scenes. Uh, as we talked about last time, most people today don't really think about how our orders get from point A to point B, how our food gets in our grocery store. We start to order it when the thing that we want is unavailable. Either the service that we want is unavailable or the item that we want is unavailable or the renovation is going to take longer than usual or we can't buy a used car or even a new car. And really for the first time, just your average person has really started thinking about supply chains. In October, we talked because there were many news stories about these shipping containers off the port of Los Angeles and in different mm -hmm. parts of the country and the world that were unable to unload and were stuck in some cases. And people didn't really know why. And we kind of blamed it. A lot of Republicans just blamed it on Joe Biden or blamed it on Gavin Newsom. But you really kind of walked us through how the whole supply chain catastrophe that really started to bubble up for the average person at the end of last year, the average person started to notice it. It really goes back uh, before Joe Biden a lot longer than just in the past few months. It's not the fault of any one politician. Can you tell us what has happened since October when it comes to supply chains? Because yes, people still notice this, but I think people have gotten used to it. I don't know. Tell us what has been going on behind the scenes and what we should still be paying attention to and looking out for. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, you, you made a really good point there that, you know, e even as recently as October, people were still wondering, well, what's going on and, and why are these containers stuck and what's in the containers and why are my shelves empty? And, and, you know, that, that's normalcy bias, right? They want to get back to what yeah. they had, you know, understood or had, had known for, for the longest time. And, and now I think, you know, we're six months on from that and, and we've sort of, you know, whether it's good or bad, I, I'd say we've, we've certainly established something of a new normal, uh, with regard to, we're just kind of used to not having the availability, uh, of yeah. product and, and kind of spoiled for choice the way we were. Uh, the, the newer and interesting developments are really kind of happening. There, there's, they're, they're twofold. First is the Russia-Ukraine invasion, which uh, yeah. has been discussed uh, once or twice in, in a couple of different forums, right? Uh, and the, the significance of that is, has really been the disruption to uh, major uh, sources of energy that Europe and, and the rest of the world rely on, which is you know, Russian natural gas and, and crude oil. Uh, you're talking about Ukrainian uh, wheat and corn. And uh, industrial chemicals and products that are also made in Ukraine that are not able to uh, to really get out, and that that whole Black Sea region I think has been very overlooked uh, for, for most people. Just like the you know container sitting off the coast of California uh, had been a months long issue uh, before people really picked up on it. Uh, at, at I would say at, an, at a normal you know normal observer level, and it's the same for the Black Sea. And the Black Sea is one of the most heavily watched regions of the world for commodities traders. Uh, what happens there has an enormous, uh, you know, like a butterfly effect uh, on different markets around the world. And so we're seeing some, some really significant uh, fears of uh, lack of grain being able to get to the global market out of Ukraine and Russia. 
uh, some constrictions on energy trade. We're also seeing the impact of sanctions and how that's forcing uh, various uh, nations that trade, you know, primarily China and India, uh, that trade with Russia. They're now denominating their trades in uh, different currencies in order to get around sanctions. And so there's this major global trade realignment that's happening as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. The other big yeah, thing and that's I, going, I just want to pause. Uh, yeah. I just want to pause right there um, and dig a little bit into that. And then if you could pick up the thought that you were about that you were about to explain mm-hmm. because you tweeted it was at the end of February and we originally talked about having you on to talk about this. So I'm hoping that you can still um, recall and explain this. So you tweeted mm-hmm. at the end of February, what happens when Russia calls the West Bluff and begins transacting business outside of SWIFT using Yuan and CIPS as clearinghouses for trade? The bifurcation is here, I think. Can you explain what you mean by that? Does that have to do with what you're talking about right now? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, so CIPS is uh, sort of the, the the Chinese version of SWIFT, uh, and SWIFT is a a, a Western, a, a European U.S. Uh, payment transaction system that allows for uh, companies uh, that are operating in different countries to be able to uh, safely conduct business with one another and know that uh, the 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 documents are going to be secure and that the uh, the money it will be transacted properly, and so we use the SWIFT system as as a way of uh, transmitting money from bank to bank worldwide for international trade, and it's really been since it emerged, it's really been the dominant way uh, that global trade gets done is is denominated in the major currencies, uh, the euro and the dollar primarily, uh, and that includes for things like oil. That's where we you know we have the petrodollar where where the uh, crude price of crude oil uh, is denominated in U.S. dollars. And so what China is now trying to do is utilize this opportunity and has been for some time planning to try to disrupt or disintermediate the, the Western system or SWIFT uh, as the way of settling trades by using their, their CIPS system and denominating trades against the yuan, uh, the Chinese currency. So what I was saying in there is that in order for these countries to really uh, break away from Western control and and you know the threat of sanctions being such a uh, such an impactful way to be able to modify behavior. Uh, Russia kind of thumbed their nose at the whole thing and said, "We don't really care about your sanctions. We're just going to start turning the gas off to Europe. We're going to start turning off the tap of crude oil unless you wanted. You know, we'll we'll figure out some mechanism uh, to right. to do these deals outside of the Western system." And so you're seeing. Uh, you know, a rupee and, and ruble, uh, what we call swap or a transaction in those two currencies. You're seeing uh, ruble yuan swap. You're seeing, you know, rupees and yuan. You're seeing these other, you know, major currencies begin to emerge uh, that don't utilize the dollar, don't utilize the euro to facilitate these transactions. And that's really a sea change. It's it's taken away an enormous amount of, of influence and capacity that Europe and the U.S. have to uh, kind of try to keep a lid on some of the more aggressive behaviors of country like China or Russia. And so that bifurcation, the 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 world now is sort of starting to split into two big spheres of commerce and trade, which is the BRICS countries, Brazil, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, kind of leading the charge in that way. And then Western countries, which is primarily, you know, what we would call the transatlantic uh, relationship between North America and Europe. Uh, it, it's really beginning to split apart. And become two totally separate things. Whereas before, uh, you know, the BRICS, you know, kind of had to be uh, a yeah. bit 
you know, tied to the U.S. and Europe. So tell me what you think some of the consequences are, because obviously we still rely on China for most things. And so there's it's not that like we can just split, at least not very easily between kind of I guess it's not necessarily the East and the West, but kind of how we would understand it. Um what what are the long-term consequences of that? If we rely on China, not just for the goods and supplies that you buy in Target, but we're talking about like medical equipment, we're talking about medication, we rely on them for so much. What is it going to look like if we are bifurcating in this way for the United States? Well, short term, it means a lot of pain. Um, we don't make a lot of the things for ourselves that we need to, that we would consider critical technologies or uh, critical goods, uh, for example, like pharmaceuticals. Uh, so we're going to have to figure out pretty quickly, you know, do we want to uh, be a uh, be a democracy in decline, so to speak, or a, uh, a a global power in decline where we're sort of subservient to whatever the wishes are of China and, and their allies and partners because we don't feel like making those things for ourselves? Uh, or are we going to sort of take the bull by the horns and understand that, you know, the short-term pain also is an opportunity for us to reclaim some of our manufacturing and economic sovereignty? Uh, and reshore or nearshore, uh, bring these plants, bring this production back to the U.S., back to the Western Hemisphere, uh, or to Europe, uh, where we, you know, have more, you know, traditional stable allies, and then say, okay, what can we bring back for ourselves? Uh, and then what do we need, you know, because we can't make the materials here, we don't have access to them, whatever. Uh, where do we need to facilitate better trade relationships uh, in order to balance the scales? So. If we do those things, we're going to be okay on an on a intermediate or long-term basis. Uh, on the short-term basis, though, we certainly have some major strategic vulnerabilities uh, that we do need to be aware of and that we do need to be uh, addressing You know, yesterday. All right, taking a quick break to bring us back, take a deep breath, and it's time for us to remember what is most important. And how do we remember what is most important? by reading the Bible. And if you need to listen to the Bible, because maybe you feel like you don't have time to sit down and read it, or you just prefer to listen, you learn better that way, you need the Dwell app. It's built a beautiful listening and reading experience for the scriptures with over a dozen new recordings of the Bible. They've got all the best versions, ESV, NASB, KJV, many others. They also have a read-along experience. So you can listen to the Bible while you are reading along. That will really help you not just meditate on scripture, but hide it in your heart and memorize it, which is so important. It's time to get in the word. So to get started with Dwell, go to dwellapp.io slash relatable, get 10% off a yearly subscription or 33% off Dwell for Life. That 33% off means you save $50. Go to dwellapp.io slash relatable and commit to scripture for the rest of this year or for life. It seems like there are people on both sides of the aisle that are opposed to the self-reliance and manufacturing that we're talking about, who just seem to be more interested in the interests of the CCP than they are in the United States. I mean, there are many ways that we could go through that it seems like the United States acquiesces to the CCP. Um, And so I'm a little concerned that they're not going to take your advice, the people who are in charge in trying to re-up the manufacturing here and try to stave off or try to help some of the pain that you're talking about feeling. And so I just really, I wonder, like, if we don't take that route, if we don't decide to try to move towards self-reliance and we do continue to rely on China for the things that we need to literally survive, 
what that will look like, I guess it'll just look like China solidifying its place as the global world power and us truly just doing whatever they want to do. Now, if there were a lot of conversations just a couple months ago, and as we just kind of mentioned about, um, I think it was Saudi Arabia starting to use the... um, what was it? Uh, was it like purchasing oil or the purchases of oil in Saudi Arabia no longer being in the U.S. currency, but in Chinese currency and what that would mean for the U.S. dollar? Am I getting that right? Yeah. So for a long time, uh, you know, like I said earlier, the, the dollar was really the the currency that, that global commodities are de- denominated in. And, the, and uh, that that's a function of us being the global reserve currency of the world where uh, pretty much every currency can be pegged against the dollar, and and so the stability of our economy, the stability of our of our governance, the stability of, uh, you know, our fiscal policy has always been sort of the benchmark, or at least for quite a long time has been the benchmark that uh, all of the other global economies uh, kind of measure themselves against and use as a support or a stabilizing mechanism. Uh, so what Saudi Arabia was proposing was to no longer just exclusively uh, transact in dollars. They were they were you know, the, the proposition was, well, if the dollar is not going to be stable, if the U.S. is no longer going to be uh, sort of this this great stabilizing force uh, for trade and, and for, you know, global economics, then we need to consider utilizing other currencies as well and maybe doing some of these deals and, and the currencies of other large countries. Uh, in this particular case, it was suggested that it would be a China and you have a petrol one. Uh, we haven't seen that happen yet, uh, to my knowledge, but Certainly plans are, are underway and, and a lot of people are beginning to hedge their bets uh, against the U.S. Uh, and towards China. Uh, that carries some real risks for everybody. Uh, China in no way is a stable, uh, stable economy or a stable actor. Uh, but the U.S. also, we have to keep our house clean and do everything we can to begin to reassure allies and to reassure the world that uh, we're not a basket case and that we're going to be able to uh, stabilize ourselves and make sure that we uh, you know, push through the next couple of years with, without causing any additional issues. Hmm. I'm not super optimistic about that. As much as I do love this country, <laughs> I'm not sure if under our current leadership, we scream stable. Um, okay. Talk, speaking of the CCP, mm-hmm. I want to get in a little bit more to what we had messaged about what is happening in North Dakota with something mm-hmm. called the Fufang Group. I'm really mm-hmm. interested to hear what this is and to hear you just kind of dig into it. What the heck is this? Why should we care? How is this connected to what we're talking about? Uh, so at its most basic level, uh, Fufang Group is a uh, Chinese uh, producer of human food and animal feed ingredients. They do this via wet corn milling. Uh, so we have wet corn milling operations, numerous of them in the U.S. Uh, they make different products. You can make almost... 30 different products uh, just from corn. Uh, starches, sweeteners, texturizers uh, among them as well uh, are things like lysine uh, or phalene, D-L-methionine, threonine. These are all things that go into animal feed and help keep the mm-hmm. animals healthy and increase their, their productivity, whether it's you know, eggs or milk or, or their meat, uh, you know, the quality of their meat. And so these are very uh, kind of unknown but critical things. If you look on the back of any uh, bag of uh, pet food, for example, uh, you'll see almost all of those ingredients named, and they're all made from, you know, in some way, uh, they're, they're derived from corn processing. So Fufeng is a very large and, and prominent and uh, politically connected company in China, and they want to come to the U.S. and uh, build a wet corn mill in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And they started that process in, in middle just of 2020. To, just to make money, or, or is there a, a, a bigger goal there? 
I would not put a wet corn mill in Grand Forks, North Dakota, if I had uh, other options available to me. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, availability mm. of the feedstock, which is corn, uh, water concerns as well. Uh, but there is something in Grand Forks that uh, continues to seem to be a target of interest for uh, what you would call like subnational uh, Chinese influence campaigns, which is trying to work directly with local uh, or city and uh, state leaders without the involvement of the United States government. So these subnational campaigns uh, continue to target Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, mainly because they have a, a little known but very important uh, Air Force base there called Grand Forks Air Force Base. So this is, uh, I'm already, I'm frightened. I'm, I'm yeah. frightened by this already, <laughs> but okay, continue. Yeah. So it's, uh, like I said, from an economic standpoint, there, there are a lot of places that, uh, you know, Fufang allegedly considered in Nebraska or Iowa or Illinois, where it would make a lot more sense to put a, a wet corn mill. Uh, but you know, the, they down selected to Grand Forks and, and the city officials by and large of Grand Forks, North Dakota are looking at this uh, purely on its economic merits, wh whatever they may or may not be, and uh, you know, really disclaiming or disregarding any sort of potential risks to U.S. national security for a CCP-linked company uh, establishing itself you know, 13, 14 miles from this Air Force base. Uh, there are bigger economic interests at work in the community and in the state uh, that you're seeing the state level push for this as well. Uh, it's somewhat complex, and, and I certainly don't want to bore the listeners, but uh, the Fufeng project is sort of looked at as a phase one to uh, dramatically increasing natural gas uh, transmission through the state, allowing the state of North Dakota to drill more, you know, to frack and uh, pull more oil out of the ground uh, so that they don't have, you know, it's, it's, they have caps on how much methane or natural gas they can flare off for their oil production. So utilizing that and, and piping that natural gas allows them to drill for more oil. Uh, and it also unlocks uh, a much larger economic project, even than the Fufeng one, which is the Northern Plains Nitrogen Project in Grand Forks. So you're seeing uh, a lot of these interests on the economic and political side come together and then be you know, harnessed and, and weaponized and taken advantage of by uh, China's subnational campaign apparatus uh, and really getting American political and economic officials to uh, ultimately do the bidding of, of what the CCP wants, which is to put one of their own companies right there next door to an Air Force base. But what do they plan to do with the Air Force base? Well, the Air Force base, you know, the, there are aspects of the base that are not publicly disclosed in terms of mission sets or, or things that they do there. Uh, there is certainly a role that the base plays from a uh, uh, surveillance and reconnaissance standpoint. Uh, it's the primary home for the RQ-4 Global Hawk Fleet, that you know, which is our uh, long loiter surveillance drones, that, and those are publicly acknowledged. You know, not not revealing anything that's not out there. Uh, so those are based out of Grand Forks. It has a major mission set, uh, both from a Space Force side and an Air Force side, for uh, management and and monitoring of things that go on in the skies above, uh, whether you know a little bit closer to Earth or in outer space. And so you're talking about something that's sending a lot of data. Uh, up and down and, and around the world to various U.S. installations and, and allies. And so being able to co-locate uh, a very low visibility uh, monitoring or, or even signals capture capability uh, on uh, you know the infrastructure of a corn mill, for example, there's a lot of metal. There's a lot of towers and there's a lot of you know just physical things that would be very easy to sort of lose uh, some low visibility technology. Uh, and, and be able to, you know, 
intercept or monitor some of those signals. So uh, it, it's really not a, um, a wise move. Uh, and, and given <laughs> and, and given the push that that the company has on for Grand Forks, when they had much better options available to them, uh, economically yeah. it really kind of begins to show us how China and U.S. officials uh, sort of work hand in hand for for their own interests uh, instead of the interests of the United States citizens. Wow, is this happening in other parts of the country? Because I've heard things like this before that there are other air force bases where suspiciously um chinese groups companies have decided to build or they've bought land i think in texas this has actually happened do you know of this happening in other parts of the country yeah texas is the most famous uh and and you know god love kyle bass and and his team and uh, people that he works with for for really blowing the whistle on that and turning it into a, a major national issue because it needed to be uh, you had a, a PLA, a People's Liberation Army, which is the military arm of the CCP uh, in China. Uh, you had one of their former uh, high-level officer in the PLA come to the U.S., establish residency here, and begin purchasing. Uh, I think by the end of it, he had he accrued almost 50,000 acres of land in Texas that was allegedly for a wind farm, uh, but the property was directly in the flight path of and very close to Laughlin Air Force Base. Uh, in South Texas, which is where we do a lot of our, uh, you know, combat pilot training for the Air Force. So uh, all of the major platforms that that the U.S. Uh, Air Force operates from a fighter jet standpoint, the F-35, the F-22, F-16, F-15, uh, all of those have a presence there at Laughlin because it's a major, tr- major training installation. And so we had 50,000 acres of Chinese-owned land uh, that, that was right, you know, right adjacent to those properties. So uh, again, uh, a very clear uh, and deliberate, you know, pattern of purchases and commercial deals, uh, you know, that are disguised to mask Chinese involvement or Chinese interest close to our military installations. Wow, this is insane. I mean, there's so much that goes on with the CCP and our government and even academia. And I remember being very disturbed when it was announced at the end of February that the Biden DOJ is ending a national security initiative aimed at countering China amid complaints about bias. There was this Trump era program that I guess was uh, investigating Chinese espionage. Mm. And because, I don't know, there were some people who complained that it was targeting people um, within the within the program or it was unfair or it was biased against Asian Americans, the Biden administration ended it all. Of course, there is this story, which we won't get into with you right now, but we've talked about before with the possible ties between the Biden family and the CCP. And I don't really think this is just a Democrat issue. It also seems like this is a Republican issue as well. And it's just amazing to me that we've allowed this to happen. Republicans and Democrats have not just allowed our manufacturing to be outsourced to China, but we're actually allowing Chinese uh, Chinese groups that are, I'm sure, under the direction of the CCP to do things here on our land that is threatening our national security. And I'm just wondering, like, what is being done about it? We're talking about it, but what is actually being done about it? Like, do you have any optimism there on any of the fronts that we're talking about, whether it comes to manufacturing or whether it comes to actually protecting our national security and not just looking at economic interests when a company from China comes in and says that they want to build something or buy something? Yeah, there is some really good work being done on that. Thank goodness. And, and you know, you touched on it, but but really one of the most powerful uh, quivers in the CCP, you know, arrows in the CCP's quiver, rather, 
uh, is this uh, conflating of problems with the CCP uh, as being a, a racial attack that's directed against uh, you know Chinese Americans or Chinese nationals. Oh yeah, they love and, that. And and it couldn't be it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, the CCP does not represent the will of the Chinese people in total. Uh, it's a uniparty country. Yes. Uh, it's a, you know, I think Steve Bannon has, has somewhat accurately described it as a transnational criminal organization uh, that happens to run, you know, first or second, depending on what metric you use, uh, the first or second largest economy in the world. And uh, it's very mafia-like. There's, you know, there's 90 million members of the Chinese Communist Party in a country that has 150 or 1.5 billion people. Uh, so very small percentage, wow. whereas in the U.S., you know, we're a two-party system. It's a huge and, number. It is a it is a huge number of, of party members. Uh, you know, by proportion, much less than you know what we have in America as far as registered Republicans or or Democrats, but uh, still a, a vastly powerful political party and and right. uh, you know infrastructure at the top of that country. But having issues with the Chinese Communist Party is like saying, well, uh, because I have issues with the Republican Party. Uh, you know, I hate all Americans, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's you have right. issues with a specific faction or group, uh, but they utilize that very, very effectively uh, as a propaganda tool. And you see that pushed. I mean, there's billions of dollars a year thrown into these influence operations that are part of the United, you know, United Front Work Program, which is this huge web of, of uh, government-directed or CCP-directed uh, propaganda operations worldwide. Many of them are operating in the U.S. very effectively. Uh, and, and influencing the highest levels of our government. So is it a Democrat problem? No. Is it a Republican problem? No. It's an everybody problem, uh, particularly when it comes to D.C. and particularly when it comes to state and local politicians who are, you know, I think easily co-opted by, you know, if I bring this project to town or if I just do this one favor, I just do this one thing, um, that's mm. going to help my career, help my constituents. We It's very easy for us to lie to ourselves and say we're doing the right thing when uh, there's personal interest on the line. You know, on the Republican side, you've got, you know, I, I can't think of anybody who's been a, a bigger advocate over the last 20 to 25 years for the interests of the Chinese Communist Party in the U.S. than Mitch McConnell and his wife, Elaine Chao. And I know those are big oh, yeah. words. Tell us but, a little bit more about that. Yeah. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah. So Elaine Chao is is uh, the daughter of uh, an individual who owns Foremost, you know, founded and owns Foremost Group. It's one of the more powerful shipping concerns. Uh, so they're a uh, originally a Taiwanese family, but uh, very, very closely linked uh, to, in particular, Zhang Zemin, uh, former or, uh, former president uh, of China, who's actually a rival faction to Xi Jinping. But uh, so Elaine Chao's family company, Foremost Group, is uh, very, very, very large, very, very prominent. Uh, her sister Angela was on the board of the Bank of China, uh, is very politically connected. Uh, so the McConnells have a very deep and, and uh, long history of uh, being very soft on China, being very friendly towards Chinese business interests. And, and that's on the Republican side. On the Democrat side, you know, pretty famously, you've got Dianne Feinstein, who uh, is probably uh, the most co-opted politician in, in the U.S. Uh, from, mm. from being a captured interest of China. So we have to get our own house clean in, in a very real way and get serious about understanding that, uh, you know, our greed uh, at the political level, our desire for uh, good stories to tell. All of that is really something that that is used against us uh, very, very effectively by the CCP. All right. Let me tell you guys about Good Ranchers. So many of you have tagged me in your Instagram stories recently 
um, after your Good Rancher shipment came in and I get so many questions asking, is it worth it if I'm single? If it, is it worth it if we only eat meat, you know, once a week? Yes, it's absolutely worth it because you get your meat to your front door. It's individually packaged. It's on dry ice. You just put it in your freezer. You can save it for as long as you want to. Guys, supply chains are crazy. We don't know what's going to happen with food shortages. It's better to be safe than sorry. So even if you're not going to eat all this meat in one month, it's good to just have it. And if you don't need it, you can share it with someone who does need it. I absolutely think Good Ranchers is worth it. You're supporting American farms. You're supporting American ranches. You're getting craft beef, better than organic chicken, a wide variety of stuff. And it's just really really good, high quality, sustainably sourced. Plus the people that own Good Ranchers, they're really good Christian people. So you're just sending your money to a good company owned by good people that share our values. It's a win-win all around. Plus it's staying really affordable even as meat prices in grocery stores are going up. Plus if you use my code Allie, you get $30 off. So if you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie, you get $30 off free express shipping. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie, promo code Allie, goodranchers.com slash Allie. When it comes to commentating on this, it does seem like it is almost an exclusively conservative position to point out the problems going on in China with China. It it does seem like the left in general, I'm sure that there are many exceptions to this, but in general, really don't want to talk about the problems with the CCP like we saw with the Beijing Olympics. Mm-hmm. You had NBC and other pundits on other liberal networks basically repeating CCP talking points about how amazing of a job the CCP did or China did in Mm -hmm. hosting these Olympics and how it was so amazing when a member of... uh, now I'm forgetting the uh, the uh, Uyghur Muslim like lit the mm-hmm. torch at the Olympics and NBC was like, wow, this is such a, a monumental moment. They seem to be so much more susceptible to CCP propaganda on the left than we are on the right. And it's strange because obviously I think that Putin is an awful dictator and what he's doing in Ukraine is awful. Yes, but it's strange how quickly especially people on the left, but a lot of people in the United States immediately, corporations included, condemned everything Russia is doing, put, you know, Ukrainian flags in their bio and are so quick to highlight the corruption and the depravity that is going on in Russia, which that's fine. But when you ask them about China or what's been going on in China, the kind of corruption and oppression and abuse, even in Shanghai, we're not seeing a whole lot of commentary from um, the left on that. And I just think that that is odd. I think that that's, is it a, like a intersectionality thing because Russia is white? They feel like they can criticize them more than they can criticize China. I don't know. But I actually think that it does, it does the United States and our national security and our interests a disservice when only one mm-hmm. half of the country is really willing to talk about that. Yeah. Hey, Russia is bad, but look what's been happening over here under the reign of the CCP. And I just happen to think that the CCP is a lot more powerful than Russia and the strategies that we're talking about them them employing in the United States, they're also employing in many different countries and poor countries around the world in much more draconian ways throughout Africa and South America, truly colonizing them. I don't know. It's just strange to me. It's strange to me that this does become a left-right issue when it comes to people giving their opinions about how dangerous the CCP is. Why Why do you think that is? Why do you think it just tends to be conservatives who are sounding the alarm about this? 
Well, you're talking about a bit of an unsquarable circle, um, and, and it's an important thing to note. So you're right that, that by and large, the outcry on the left uh, against Russia has been, uh, you know, incredibly loud and, uh, you know, deservedly so. I mean, you're talking about, a, you know, one country has invaded another country and um, war by any measure, regardless of who the actors in, are involved, uh, is a really horrible, terrible thing. And so war has been visited on Ukraine by Russia. And so that has been, you know, condemned loudly by, you know, a lot of people who, who are of the, you know, center left or leftist camps in the U.S. And you're right. They, at the same time, they do everything they can to fall all over themselves to apologize, uh, you know, and, and run air cover for things that the CCP does in China. And I think a big part of it is, is that uh, China is a, you know, still actively a communist country. Uh, it has an authoritarian model, and, and that strain of appreciation for a specific type of authoritarianism uh, that runs mm -hmm. through the cultural left of the U.S., there's still very much a, a strong solidarity that, that uh, a lot of leftist Americans have and progressives have for uh, Marxist-style authoritarianism. And what, yeah. you know, uh, Putin's particular type of, uh, you know, gangster uh, capitalism and, and totalitarianism is probably more aligned a little bit with the way we would think of like, you know, uh, historically right is, you know, right is fascist movements in Europe, like Nazism or, you know, like the fascist party in Italy. And so there's this, you know, I think reflexive antagonism towards that from the left, uh, but, a, you know, almost a reflexive desire to defend uh, the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And at the same time, the, 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 the third rail of that that nobody wants to acknowledge is the very tight uh, interdependence and cooperation of Russia and China uh, in working right. against the shared, you know, you know, shared interests of the of Europe and the U.S. Uh, so it is uh, it, it is a, a worldview that's full of internal contradictions. I think it's a lot easier, you know, a lot easier just to say I'm against corruption and totalitarianism in whatever form uh, it exactly. appears in. Uh, you know, so if people are being subjugated and, and harmed and uh, not, you know, the natural rights of man not being respected that, you know, life, liberty and happiness, uh, then, you know, we as Americans really do have an obligation to stand against that as well. Uh, but like so many other things, you know, we've discussed here that, you know, and that's discussed elsewhere, uh, these internal contradictions exist largely, uh, so that our own, you know, political, uh, you know, needs and economic needs here in the U S can be satisfied in, in whatever way is most convenient. Yeah, I think even on the most superficial level, people associate wrongly, I think, Russia with Trump. They still believe mm -hmm. that there was Russian collusion. And so because that was a narrative that was spun for four years that Trump is in bed with Putin, I think mm -hmm. that there are a lot of people on the left who just that's really is as deep as it goes for them. They just think that. You know, Russia is right wing. Russia is Trumpist. Trump likes Russia. Everyone on the right likes Russia, which I think there are some weirdos on the right who think that they do like Putin's authoritarianism. But I think that they are definitely the exception. So I think that's as far as it goes for some people. And just to reiterate what we're both saying is, yes, we can decry what's happening in Russia. But look, like, let's not turn a blind eye to what's happening in China. And as you mentioned, it's not the Chinese people. It is the CCP. I think there is no greater example of that than what's happening in Shanghai right now. Mm -hmm. People are locked in their apartments. They're locked in their homes for the past few weeks, many of them without food and water. We're talking about children being separated from their parents if they test positive. If someone in someone's building tests positive for COVID, they all have to be quarantined for 14 days. These are people who are stuck in isolation. There's reports of um, 
a large number of suicides and, of course, self-harm. And there's been an attempt to protest, but the videos coming out of these police officers just beating these people, taking mm-hmm. children away from their parents, beating dogs, putting cats in bags. I mean, it's just awful. And again, I don't think that it's getting the coverage that it should. I mean, we are talking about a humanitarian crisis just as evil, just as wicked as what is happening in Ukraine. And we should definitely be putting our attention and putting our eyes there. And yet they're the reaction, unfortunately, for a lot of people here seems to just be disproportionate. Um, tell me, I guess, just your thoughts on what's happening in Shanghai, but also how is that affecting everything that we're talking about? How is that affecting supply chains? How is that also affecting, um, I guess, the need of China to present itself, just like America needs to, to present itself as kind of a stable force that this now their side of the bifurcated world can really rely on, if that makes sense. It does. Um, it's something I've said from the beginning. I think a lot of people bought into the the whole uh, narrative that that Xi Jinping and, and the CCP, you know, put out of you know zero COVID, and and that's the that's the goal. And yeah. some people, you know, bought into and promulgated the whole mandate of heaven thing, and that pestilence and disease is a sign that the mandate of heaven has is no longer upon, uh, you know, Xi Jinping, and and, and it's really not about hmm. that. I've said from the beginning that the targeting of uh, Shenzhen, the targeting of Shanghai for these uh, extremely repressive and, and in the case of Shanghai, violent uh, and deadly lockdowns uh, is not about COVID. Uh, it's not about the CCP having egg on its face as COVID continues to spread. Uh, COVID is really no worse there than it has been all along. This is 100% about the fact that in October, uh, the, the party Congress is going to meet again as the, as they do every five years. And Xi Jinping has done everything he can to clear all the roadblocks that, that exist, uh, you know, legislatively and internally in, in, in the Chinese communist party. Uh, and, and he's, you know, going to make a run at being elected, you know, essentially president for life. How does this uh, help that? Well, so the, Shanghai is the base of power for, uh, Jiang Ximin, who is, you know, a former, uh, former president of China. Uh, who is himself, uh, you know, still a very, very, you know, that faction, the Shanghai gang or the Jamin faction are still very, very, very prominent uh, and powerful in China. And increasingly over the last few years have been the target of uh, corruption probes, uh, the target of anti-businessman probes, because uh, that is the business class and the financial class of, of China uh, really is, you know, located in and around uh, Shanghai. Historically, that's been their base of power. And the reason for that is that Shanghai is, is absolutely one of, you know, as a economic region, uh, one of the manufacturing powerhouses of the world. Uh, but it's also the gateway for the Yangtze River, uh, which brings about, I think, 20% of the goods in China transit on the Yangtze River and come out at the port of Shanghai uh, and all the various terminals there. So Shanghai and is also a, a very powerful and important uh, transshipment point for global cargoes. Uh, that, you know, smaller ships that may run, you know, throughout Asia and, you know, along the Chinese coastal waterways bring smaller volumes of cargo and then they get on the huge ships that can load at Shanghai and they come to the U.S. or go to Europe or whatever. So you're talking about a city that, you know, financially, uh, economically, uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, geographically and logistically uh, is really one of the, the linchpin cities and regions of the world. And the whole thing is completely locked down uh, because the faction that, comes from there that's still, you know, that's its base of financial and political power as a threat to Xi Jinping uh, and to his faction in the October elections. And uh, 
it almost baffles, you know, or boggles the mind that uh, we're seeing such a, a overt uh, exercise of authoritarian and, and dictatorial control uh, over such a massive, uh, you know, economic region and body of people. Uh, but that's exactly what we're seeing is this is this is an output of uh, internal, you know, communist politics in China. It's uh, it has a devastating impact on not only on the residents there in a, in a very real humanitarian way. Uh, from a supply chain standpoint, it has a very large impact on the U.S. You're seeing an awful lot of uh, what is still being manufactured in China and in regions that aren't locked down. Can't get out of China because the vessels are stuck there waiting to load or unload. Uh, so it's, a, again, just, just like so many other things that we've seen, we've got these massive bottlenecks happening at one end of the Pacific Ocean or the other and uh, has significant downstream impact to the U.S. economy because we're not getting the things that we need, whether it's pharmaceuticals or electronics or whatever it may be, because they're stuck in China. All right, last sponsor for the day. You know them, you love them. It is Carly Jean Los Angeles, one of my favorite companies ever. And I would be saying that whether they advertised on this show or not. And I would be buying their clothes whether they advertised on this show or not. It's an LA-based capsule clothing company. They simplify your life. They simplify your closet. They have uh, a limited number of really high quality and versatile pieces that you can wear year round. You can wear it when you're pregnant, when you're post postpartum. It's just really fashionable, nice stuff that I love. A lot of their stuff is made in the U.S., which of course is really important to us. And I'm a simple gal, so I love that it's a lot of their pieces are good layering pieces. It's not too flashy, although they've got cute patterns, but you really can wear it any occasion, any season, any stage of life. Plus, again, the people who own this company, Carly Jean, they're amazing. They have the same values that we do. So you don't have to worry about sending your money to a women's clothing company that, for example, turns around and donates to Planned Parenthood, which unfortunately happens. You can trust that your money is going to a place that supports life, supports the things that we hold dear. And plus, it's just a great product. So go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use promo code AllieB. You'll save 20% off on your first order of anything in their online store. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com, promo code Allie B, CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. If you were to predict how all this is going to unfold over the next year or two, when do things get better? Do they get better? Do they get worse before they get better? Give us a best case and worst case scenario, and then I've got one final question. Sure. Best case scenario, uh, we start to see this clear up uh, sometime around the end of, uh, you know, sometime around the end of quarter one, early quarter two, about this time uh, next year. These are the kinds of delays that that take months uh, to really clear out and, and to, you know, to normalize. Uh, the tale of this is, you know, potential disruption to Chinese and American companies that uh, don't have the cash flow and financial resources to weather this storm. Uh, so you'll see a lot of them go out of business and and or get you know consolidated into or bought up uh, by larger competitors that that have the ability and resources to do that. Uh, so that's the best case scenario. Is you see some uh, you see some companies go away that previously were here, but but you know trade does continue to somewhat flow. Uh, you also see a push towards reshoring, uh, and the U.S. gets you know fairly serious about that as as a uh, as an economic and national security matter. The worst case scenario is that we really learn nothing from this and we put our heads in the sand and say, hey, we'll just, we'll muddle along the best we possibly can and everything eventually will get better. 
uh, but choosing not to act is, is in fact making a decision and uh, it's the wrong decision. My sense is, is that we will land somewhere in the middle of the two, probably more towards the, the worst case scenario here. <laughs> uh, and that we will, un, you know, unfortunately see a mix of stagflation uh, leading eventually into recession in the U.S. here over the next year to two years. Uh, we're already seeing demand destruction happen in the U.S. Inventories are growing in the U.S. and ordering from U.S. manufacturers into China is slowing down. Uh, so we're already starting to see the beginning of that. We're going to see home prices begin to level off and possibly even fall here in the next, you know, next few months where it's been pretty much red hot going all the way back to the beginning of the Trump administration. Uh, so a lot of these things are negative signals for the U.S. economy. Uh, but I do believe uh, in America. I do believe in Americans more than I, much more than I believe in our political class. Uh, but I do know some people that are doing, you know, really heroic and amazing things at trying to mitigate and, and fight back against uh, CCP propaganda and influence and commercial programs in the U.S. Uh, I know some people, you know, Commerce and Treasury and the White House, Department of Defense, and all these other agencies that do take this very seriously. And that's good. Yeah, and and so that's. Uh, pain for the short to intermediate time, but I think, uh, I hope and I believe that this will be the time we, we do learn our lesson and by 2030 and into 2035, you know, certainly my children and, and everybody else's children who are elementary and junior high and high school age will, will I think, really begin to see the fruits of that and, and have very, very good and prosperous adult lives as we come out of this period. Wow, I hope so. That is very optimistic. I think that's what we're all thinking. There are so many moms that listen to this podcast, and that's what we're most worried about. What is this world? What is this country going to look like by 2030, by 2035? And I hope that your vision is right. And I hope that your optimism is right. We all want to feel that too. What can the average person do? We don't work in logistics. We don't work in politics. We don't work in the White House. What can the average person do to push back against some of the stuff that we're talking about? At the local level, and, and, and I have to really give you know a shout out, as it were, to a lot of the amazing people in Grand Forks, North Dakota. They're, uh, with, with this Fufang project and, and its impact on the community, uh, they're really modeling exactly what uh, I, I hope every community who runs into these projects, you know, not all of them are going to be as, uh, you know, big on the order of half a billion dollars as, as the Fufang project is in Grand Forks. But, you know, in ways large and small, what we're seeing up there is, is a group of committed and, and resilient and dedicated individuals put their time and money and effort into saying, no, this is wrong. Here's why it's wrong. And they're using every, you know, legal and political and economic means at their disposal to, to push back. And, my goodness, that that's just inspiring. It's it's really the first time. Is it time working? We, it is working. It is working. I, I think I think when we're gonna you know we look back in a year and, and that project is is not gonna have moved forward. It's it's gonna be stalled or completely dead in the water. Mm. Um, wow. And and that's that's ninety nine point nine percent due to uh, the efforts of the you know the the citizens of Grand Forks that are organizing and rallying. And so in 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 that way, what's happening there is very much for in my view a model for what people can do in their and their local and, and county communities and at the state level is, you know, identifying when these things are, you know, it's sort of the old, if you see something, say something, you know, these sketchy projects are everywhere. And if people just use their common sense and dig a little bit and use the resources that are easily available. And the biggest thing is to not have fear and, and to ask the questions that make city council members and mayors and economic development people uncomfortable, put them on the spot and make them answer for the ways in which 
you know, U.S. states and communities have have sort of become these uh, vectors of Chinese influence against the United States interests. Yes. So pay attention, ask questions, absolutely dig, organize, raise a respectful ruckus, as we like to say on this yes. podcast, hold the people in charge accountable. It doesn't matter. Republican, Democrat, Republicans are very susceptible, I think, to economic deals because we, you know, I mean, we want a good economy, of course. Everyone right. wants more money circulating in your economy, and that's a good thing. But it's not a, a good economy at all cost. A good economy has to has to be defined by more than just more dollars, more than right. just a transaction. Um, and so I am so encouraged by what you are seeing in North Dakota with that community there. And I do encourage people to look more into it themselves and try – to model any efforts um, in your own community after that. Well, Ross, thank you so much. You left us on a positive note last time, even though we're talking about pretty complex and kind of sometimes depressing things. Um, I do appreciate your optimistic outlook. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. How can people follow you and support you? Uh, so really the two main ways are uh, ones on Twitter. I'm uh, at man underscore integrated. And then uh, FortisAnalysis.substack.com. The link's also in my Twitter bio, and uh, you know you'll occasionally see things you know reposted on Zero Hedge and and a few other places. Uh, Epic Times is another one that's been a really kind and and you know generous platform as far as uh, allowing me to help speak on some of these things. So uh, it's awesome. out there, and uh, you know certainly my you know my messages are are widely open, and and a lot of people you know in ways large and small you know take advantage of that opportunity and. I try to be as generous as I can with with my time and information. Certainly, this isn't about money. It's just trying to help people, you know, learn and live a little bit better, uh, you know, here as yeah. Americans. Yeah, and I appreciate that so much. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, ma'am.